SJW channels fail, a lot of the big the SJWs, SJWs can't even cable. talk. The SJWs just literally go. <laughs> they can't talk. Like they're in a body snatcher movie. No, I mean, that is part of it, Alex. They're Go lazy. <laughs> they don't spend 10 hours sat in front of the computer editing a YouTube video. They can just put out a tweet and virtue signal and it's easier for them. All right. Hello and welcome to the Entry Level Left. Tonight we are discussing social justice warriors, political correctness, identity politics, and call-out culture. I'm Jared. I'm Matt. I'm Nathan. And tonight we have what I believe to be a very interesting episode. For sure. <laughs> so let's get started with all this. Uh, I've kind of given the lead in here. What is a social justice warrior? So I'm sure most people listening to the show are at least vaguely familiar with the term social justice warrior. If I recall correctly, the first time I heard it was like on Facebook back in the old days when I still had a bunch of like people from high school and reactionaries and different um, people of differing views on my Facebook. But it's definitely like this term that has become negative. Um, I know in the past, like if you look at the history of the, the usage of the term, it used to be considered sort of a, a positive term. But basically, for you know people that may not be informed, uh, social justice warrior is sort of a, a negative or a pejorative term for an individual who promotes quote-unquote socially progressive views, including things like feminism, civil rights, you know, even multiculturalism. So identity politics are involved in that as well. We'll get into that later in the show um, because that's a, a very big topic on the left. But basically the accusation that somebody is an SJW or a social justice warrior, it carries this implication that they're pursuing, you know, sometimes personal validation rather than any you know, real deep-seated conviction. And and when you see this happening, it's typically considered like the term virtue signaling, like when someone is pretending to have virtue for some type of uh, social cloud or social capital. But I think nowadays, definitely social justice warrior has become, you know, maybe unfairly in some sense, a, a negative term. But when was the first time that you guys heard that term and and what did you think about it um so first time i heard it was actually like if i remember when it when i saw it come up regularly it was like back in the tumblr days probably around like 2013 or 2014 i just remember that's more when i started getting a little bit more like left left on social media and whatnot and i would just see like screen grabs of like some reactionary person like calling someone an sjw and then there would be like a thread in response to that and I mean, I guess like, and I should, we, I should preface, I mean, there could be people who are listening to this who are like, I consider myself to be, like I mean, I definitely justice. consider yeah. myself yeah, I mean, to be a anybody who does warrior. activism is kind of technically right. a social I, justice warrior. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's like the first way you kind of, you know, see it as in this negative sense. I mean, with that said, I do have my left critiques yeah. of what I would consider a social justice warrior, but to ask going to the question, what is a social justice warrior? I would consider it typically someone who overall, yes, is concerned with progressive social values, but maybe their overall outlook on society and the world as it stands and is organized currently is more of a liberal one. Yeah. yeah so exactly. this could be someone who's like, well, 
you know, I'm passionate about civil rights. I'm passionate about healthcare. I'm passionate about, you know, ending racism in America or Black yeah. Lives Matter. But all good things and, and and calling out people who say really dumb shit about those things. Yes, like you said, all good things. But maybe when they're pushed a little harder on like, okay, well, what is the means to fix this? They're probably going to default to like, well, we either need to maybe vote for people who are, you know, in line with our views, or we just need to have like more diverse representation and things yeah. like TV and movies and business and whatever. And we've talked about it so much at this point, like with the, with the liberal from like the second episode from right. like yeah, early days, yeah. like right. liberalism versus the left. Yeah. You know, if you want more about that, you can check out that episode too. But I mean, it's ge just generally this idea you know, when you see the term social justice warrior, it's a negative connotation nowadays because a lot of people on the right, especially that that see the, the social justice warriors, they kind of look at them as like people that are only really in it for the social capital or the, the clout that comes along with it. But often like people that are like stereotypical social justice warriors are only vocal about it in the sense that it helps them socially but, you know, they're maybe absent at a Black Lives Matter rally or they're absent in and real activism. They kind of use like these these really stereotypical pictures of people like it'll mm -hmm. always be like, you know, an overweight girl wearing like almost nothing with like a pink, pink hair. Right. And like, you know, she, I don't know, doesn't shave her armpits and has thick rim glasses. And you'll see these same pictures pop up over and over again. Patriarchy. We do not hate you. Fuck face. Mr. Entitled. Mr. Ego. Patriarchy, fuckface. And they're just using these because they want, when anyone says SJW, they want that image to pop in their right. head. And everyone goes, oh my God, I know somebody yeah. that's like that. I sat next to somebody in, in college that's just like that, you know? And that's exactly what they're, they're kind of shooting to. To kind of answer your question earlier, you had said, where did you first see it? And it's kind of interesting you said Tumblr because I saw it on the opposite side of the internet on 4chan. Yeah. And that's... Right. If I if you had asked me where it started, that's where I would say probably a, a lot of this kind of Definitely. language Definitely. started going around. That's probably why it showed up on on Tumblr because right. there was a lot of back and forth between those two websites, you know, back back then. And I think from 4chan, it started kind of like permeating like things do onto different websites like Facebook, Reddit, like where you saw yeah, Reddit right, yeah. and stuff like that. And then I think now what's kind of scary is that it has started to show up on Fox News. Right. You know, now Tucker Carlson talks about SJWs mm -hmm. and right. before O'Reilly or um, right. Hannity. Yeah. Like they all kind of make these references kind of back to this kind of SJW culture. Right. You know, and they, they want you to picture the, right. the fat pink hair feminist right, right. stereotypical girl in your head. They want you to hate that. They know? want right. you to disconnect the social progressive values from it. They want you to think of a social justice warrior as just this caricature of some type of like you know, person that like an average conservative or just like, you know, a MAGA chud like wouldn't wouldn't connect with. Like right. they would have nothing in common. They would have nothing to speak about because they want to like they want to isolate the bad things that they don't connect with them on, like socially liberal like aesthetics or whatever the whatever the case may be. They want to alienate that from the main purpose of, you know, the term, which is like someone that is involved and inspired by or passionate about or social justice and and civil rights uh, feminism, whatever, what, like what, you know, could be anything. But I think Nathan, you bring up a, an excellent point that I wanted to touch on. And we've talked about this before 
we've been excited to do this episode because we wanted to talk a, a little bit about the origin. But I mean, someone that comes to mind specifically would be like Ben Shapiro. Because Ben Shapiro got a lot of his fame, like started becoming more prominent because of YouTube videos where he goes and titles it, oh, you know, lib liberal owned on campus, blah, blah, blah. But then you watch the video and it's like this 17 year old girl with blue hair who is probably like a middle class person coming from like a, a middle class background that is like a freshman yeah, and right. doesn't understand like how to counter arguments or doesn't have like a large like repertoire of information to debunk what like nonsense Ben Shapiro is saying. Yeah. So he basically frames the video as if he's like owning this person in a debate where it's like it's not it's fundamentally unequal and it's also like on his end very gimmicky. Yeah. But I feel like people like Ben Shapiro rose to prominence over, you know, the the rise of this social justice warrior yeah. not just culture. Him. Steven Crowder. Steven does Crowder, the whole thing Milo. With the, uh, yeah, Milo, Milo. Good. Jordan Peterson himself. That right. was his big break. I mean, he started to veer more towards like the intellectualism side of things. Well, he but wanted to give. That's how he started. He wanted to give a yeah more, air quotes around intellectualism. Yeah, but he, <laughs> he wanted he does, like the one on one debates. Yeah, no, more. he wanted to give more what appeared to be more intellectual and rational legitimacy to the shit that like because Stephen Crowder, Milo. Ben Shapiro, mm -hmm. their whole goal from the beginning was to be like, ha ha, stupid SJW, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's completely Vers owning. Right, versus, versus like what Peterson wanted to do is to give it more of like that kind of academic legitimacy. Yeah. Our research did indicate, it's tentative research so far, that that the the, the SGS, SJW sort of equality above all else philosophy is more prevalent among women. It's predicted by the personality factors that are more common among women. So agreeableness and high negative emotion, primarily agreeableness. But in addition, it's also predicted by being female. So it gave like a a more legitimate argument to the alt-right because at the end of the day, like, you know, going to where did this terminology first appear, regardless of how we saw it first appear in our lives, it is largely an alt-right terminology. I mean, right. it came from the alt-right. And so now that the alt-right has been legitimized, we see it in their major platforms. Yeah, right. And it plays in other narratives too, like, the whole like cultural Marxism narratives and of things course. like that as well. So there is like larger conspiracies behind it too. Right. Yeah. But I mean, with all of that said, I would say that I do, while like progressive social values are like obviously a good objective to have, I myself, considering myself on the left, do have my criticisms of what I perceive to, to be a social justice warrior. Same. And mine, are, mine mostly revolve around, you know, like just clout. Like people... You know, virtue signaling, right? Essentially, you right. know, pretending to be, you know, this great activist, but really all you're doing is like doing is like sharing memes, right? Essentially, like you're not you're not showing up at rallies, you're not organizing people, or or like literally going out of your way to like dig up information on someone you consider a friend from some stupid shit they said like ten years ago, yeah, and like, then trying to completely like ruin their lives over. Oh, right. I mean, a lot of it isn't who you're targeting, like, right? If you're going on a more neutral space, like a comment section on a newspaper, and you're saying, hey, this is a little bit problematic. You shouldn't be speaking like this. Right. That's something. But if you're tracking down like another friend who's almost just as left as you right. and is generally trying to do the right thing and you're going to police them on like very small things mm -hmm. instead of being constructive, like you're you're kind of working against right. like, the larger picture, yeah. you know? Yeah. The larger well, movement. I think, and I think so, I, I mean, I think that transitions kind of into like the next point, you know, which is, 
one thing that's often associated with you know such social justice warriors or social justice warrior culture and what's particularly called out by the right or at least is dominantly called out by the right is this idea of political correctness right. so i guess my question in the group would be you know what is political correctness what what do we mean by political correctness and probably also how has the the right sort of I mean, invoked yeah, this terminology. It's, it's a complicated discussion to have because I think the right has co-opted the the phrase in some sense. Like they've definitely turned it into something that it it isn't necessarily. But to me, like political correctness is just like you know knowing when not to say something, knowing to be sort of diplomatic in the words that you use and the way that you approach situations. But more than that, I think like to just condense it or crystallize it, it's just like I've always thought of political correctness as just being compassionate, like just be kind, like don't, you know, use like an R slur to talk about handicapped people or people with disabilities, like just like understanding that, you know, your words have power, like understanding that while something may be like not charged to you, someone else may have an experience or something you know, about their identity that that word or that that phrase or the, those the way that you approach a situation can be charged in a different way because of their experiences. And I think political correctness, just to be frank about it, is just like this culture of, you know, just be be compassionate, be empathetic, mm-hmm. understand where you fit in, like where your privileges lie, where your identity lies, and understand that other people don't share that same experience. You don't need to be like I guess condescending about it, but just like understand that those people experience things differently from you and be accepting and open and and kind about it. So political correctness, I mean, obviously it's used on the right for them. Like when you say like, you know, something is clearly abhorrent, you know what I mean? Like what you just said is clearly like fucking horrendous, you know, like a lot of the shit Milo used to say. They'd be like, oh, you know, free speech, you're just a, like, whiny, politically correct SJW or whatever. The larger battle here, the thing that I fight for on American college campuses is the right to be, do, and say whatever you want. It's about freedom of expression, the First Amendment, which is something that's under threat in this country, like, perhaps never before. But, like, me being someone on the left, like, I do have uh, some beefs with political correctness. Like, I don't think all the time that political correctness is necessarily, like, being used to invoke compassion. For instance, like yeah. me not calling someone with a disability the R word or me not calling someone a racial slur isn't me being politically correct. That's me not being a fucking piece giant of piece of shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I inherently know not to do that. Exactly. If you don't inherently know not to do that or you feel an urge or compelled to do that, then you're probably a reactionary piece yeah, of I mean, shit. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I get what you're saying. Political, you're not being politically correct. You're just like not not being right. a complete to piece me, of shit. To me, and I guess my, like where I even have gray area with this political correctness is the idea that it's like, if you don't really heavily police like everything you say as constantly and as frequently as it's changing, I'm not saying that it's not changing with the best intentions, but like as soon as it's not, your, your language hasn't adapted immediately and, you know, you got screenshots of you, like, saying something that someone else wants to make a big deal or say is inappropriate or whatever, then all of a sudden now it's like, you know, you're problematic and, you know, this, that, and the other. And so to me, political correctness is kind of, it it really waves this fine line because I think there's a a, a variance between the ways in which political correctness is 
adopted by or used by the left versus the way political correctness is used by more of what I would consider kind of the social justice like liberal types. Because I do feel like political correctness can oftentimes be weaponized even against people who are on further to the left. Yeah. Yeah. And there's ways for the left and people who are acting completely in the left's interest to be labeled politically incorrect as well. Right. You know what I mean? Like all the talks about, like, I know it's kind of stupid and memey at this point, but, you know, people talking about gulags or people talking about giving people the wall and, you know, <laughs> like revolution jokes and things like that. They're not politically correct. You know what I mean? And right. that's a, a completely a leftist type of humor. So it's like, it's almost kind of like, it's not necessarily an inherently like right wing type of right. type of accusation. Yeah, like political incorrectness isn't inherently reactionary. It's kind of it's like, like a mainstream kind of bias, you know what right. I mean? Like an establishment bias more but than it's just like, a right wing bias. But like I have like for instance, you know, someone saying, "Oh, you know, American Indian culture, you know, says or believes this that or the other." Did and you then, just, did you just and say then someone Indian? and then someone did getting just... on there and being like <laughs> I can't believe you would say that it's actually, and I'm like, first of all, you're a white person. Why are you talking to me about this? You know what I mean? Like also there's, there's a far better way to go about having that discussion. If you're true, if you are truly concerned with the person learning and not using that terminology, then this immediate inversion to call out, like out of using more politically correct language, I just, my main issue with it in the way I've seen it employed by I think a lot more of the social justice liberal types towards people on the left is in a way that's almost opportunistic. Like like you yeah. were talking about earlier, like the kind of like clout upping, you know, and clout game. Yeah, yeah, clout game. And doing, you know, like, hey, look at me. I'm calling out this person on this incorrect language that they use. And it's like, first of all, you a lot of times the people who are doing this have no place to really be splitting hairs over this shit. And two, even if they do, the manner in which they go about it, I just think is fundamentally incorrect. No, I agree. But to give like a, to give the listener like a concrete definition of political correctness, most people would consider it the avoidance, um, often considered uh, as taken to extremes, of forms of expression or action that are perceived to exclude, marginalize, or insult groups of people who are socially disadvantaged or discriminated against. So in my opinion, even the way that it's defined colloquially or or in the mainstream kind of indicates that it's already been co-opted by the right wing. Right. Like it already yeah. indicates some type of like othering for extremism, for just being concerned about civil rights or, or social progressive values. Like to me, I think it's a masterful tactic by the right to, to undermine these things that are otherwise really objectively positive in society and to put them in a negative light as if they're something that is unachievable or something that is even undesirable. And that, that I think is the the biggest takeaway for me that makes me upset about it. Well, yeah. And I think that's, you know, what you were saying about the right is in sort of the way that they use political correctness is it's always someone who, you know, they say an extremely inflammatory argument, they make jokes about like killing immigrants at the border, you know, this, that, and the other, and then you call them out on it and you're like, oh, well, you're just upset because you're politically correct or you're one of those SJWs or something like that. When in reality, like you're calling out something that has like the ability to enact real material violence like on someone, like it's, it's really, it's really happening, you know? And I think that the issue here specifically with, 
like the right, though, is we already know that these arguments that they make in regards to political correctness are a sham to begin with. I mean, Fox News, who is really the like one of the major vocal points for the the alt-right and like the alt-right bastions that exist within the United States, certainly now with like the Tucker Carlson type, Sean Hannity, like you listed earlier. I mean, they've dedicated episodes of their shows on primetime hours to this notion of like the war on Christmas. You know what's coming, not just cold weather and shopping and caroling, but also new progressive attacks on Christmas. I know that that's so drug out by even like liberal MSNBC types, but like why that's so important to me in regards to this political correctness debate is because they find it funny that you're offended. You can't take a joke when they say something horrendous about, about a minority that, or that is actually that is group. actually happening. But because a Starbucks employee says happy holidays as opposed to Merry Christmas, they are running primetime television hours about this notions of like cultural Marxism. And they're trying to disrupt and destroy traditions and replace them with their own version of some transitory nonsense. And it's not like they stop with one thing, right? They find something, they kind of destroy that, and they'll move on to everything else that we love. Oh yeah, the world's falling apart. Right, this, exactly. Yeah. Why though? Why? It's very important why. They don't actually give a shit about the whole Happy Holidays versus Christmas thing. What they give a shit about is that it's an affront to historically traditional white Christian Cultural dominance, cultural yeah, dominance yeah. within society. Which is funny because in a way, it's like they're using that definition that Matt said earlier of political correctness, and they're using the kind of fuzzy parts where they're saying like marginalized groups, and they're saying, well, what's a marginalized group? And so this whole game of identity politics kind right. of enters, and yeah, that's where exactly, they've said, yeah. oh, not only are black people oppressed, and not only are Muslims oppressed, but so are Christians, right, we're all right. oppressed. And so they use that kind of fuzziness of what political correctness actually is right. to kind of make their own point. I think the average like right-wing person or the average conservative doesn't honestly believe that oppression or marginalization exists in society. I really feel like they think like since the civil rights movement happened, and everyone is technically equal under the eyes of the law even though they're you know big air quotes around that right but i think that they really believe that social justice warriors and people that are politically correct are doing it like in vain for their own like selfish clout reasons of course because the right wingers don't actually believe in any like long-standing or systemic you know oppression or marginalization in society because Think of their media, like nothing in their media in Fox News tells them to view things in a structural way. It's never it's never about solving the root of the problem. It's always about deflecting it and scapegoating some other group that that has, you know, some type of like cultural stake in the problem. But it's not really structurally their fault. But it's like it's easy for right wing pundits to say, OK, well, it's just all these like rapists and these people, these cartel members coming in from Mexico that we're trying to keep out. Right. And honestly, that's a great point that you just brought up, because what it goes back to is all the way back to our episode three on neoliberalism, because at the end of the day, like what is their mantra? Like what is the sort of end all be all for the modern American right wing and even the modern American like liberal class is this idea of extreme individuality. Right. The proper way to fix the world isn't to fix the world. There's no reason to assume that you're even up to such a task, but you can fix yourself. You'll do no one any harm by doing so. And in that manner, at least, you will make the world a better place. 
I'm Jordan Peterson. For Prager University. As soon as the civil rights movement happens, all things are appeased. Now it's on you, the individual. If you can't make it happen, if you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get you out of this situation that the United States government has spent the past 200 years enforcing upon you. The black card will still confer upon you an entire history of oppression, even if you've never been oppressed. It's because you're lazy, you're a failure, you can't do this, and you know anyone who can has a more superior work ethic. When in reality, we know that not to be the case. But that is a much, a much easier, much more prevailing, and much more useful narrative to keep these sorts of dialogues and and class interests sort of in in power in the way that they are in society. Yeah, it's today. very useful to the ruling class for people to look at problems in an individualized, atomized sense. Because what that allows um, people to think in society is that, you know, they don't have power. Right. Like they don't have they don't have group power or any type of like means to accrue power through whether it's collective bargaining, whether it's organization, politically, anything like that. They don't want us to believe that we have power. And even going back to like a previous episode we have on on private prisons where we talked about I think it was like the CEO of maybe Wayfair or one of these companies yeah. that was distributing home goods and bedding Wayfair, to yeah. yeah to to migrant detention centers or concentration camps like yeah I'm just mm. going to say it it's a yeah. concentration camp yeah. anyway um if you don't agree fuck you so <laughs> um but what I mean is like this guy basically said like don't use your work time to be political as a company we're not political we're just selling to concentration camps so right. You know, that's not political at all in any way. I'm being sarcastic, right, right, but right. I'm just saying, you know, this is the type of ideology that gets passed down from the ruling class into the managerial class and the, you know, the keepers of capitalism and these ideologues that reinforce it in the working class. But this is what it this is what it becomes like yeah. atomized, individualized approaches to solving structural societal problems that, you know, unless we band together and have like a unified front on will never dent them. But kind of bringing it back to like the episode like topic here, you know, I think one reason why that this sort of hyper individualized neoliberalist like mantra is so relevant to a lot of what we're talking about in this episode now and how it's easy for the right to sort of or especially the ruling class but also the right wing like pundits and stuff to sort of like fish up and use like SJWs and political correctness and all this as a means to like you know, invigorate this like mass like right wing movement is because because of this the long standing individualist sort of neoliberal like mantra that's been imposed on our society at large and this sort of idea that if you don't make it, it's on your own work ethic and it has nothing structurally to do with anything else. Yeah. There obviously are a lot of like disenfranchised working class, like white people, for instance, in the United States, right? And having grown up in this society and not being, you know, completely aware of, let's say, like Marxist analysis of yeah. the economy, yeah. all they see is them busting their ass and not making enough money. And they have these outlets telling them that the reason that they're not making as much is because these immigrants are taking their jobs and all that stuff. And they can't say anything about it. We can't really say this. We can't speak truth because everyone's so politically correct now. Or all these SJWs are defending yeah, these. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that the right doesn't have like a full and thorough understanding of what they're even 
like lobbying against or or fighting against. Because, well, I think I think the unified like intelligentsia of the right knows oh, exactly yeah. what they're well, they doing. Well, they know what I mean. They're trying to engineer socially right. and culturally, but I'm saying the average right winger or working class right winger doesn't understand that it's you know it's not the immigrant that's taking a job. It's your boss just won't pay you more. Like right. your boss would gladly hire a, an, an illegal immigrant to do the same job that you do for way less money if they can get right. away with it. But that's also, not the immigrants. Fault. Yeah. It's like another thing I wanted to bring up with this, this bootstrap ideology and this neoliberal, you know, ideology where, you know, everything is so individualized. I would say, look at it from like the capitalist mode of production sense. Like, even if you think that like everything is the individual's responsibility, like if you look at the way capitalism works, like no capitalist is getting rich off like their individual work and individual ingenuity. Right, right. Like it's always them getting rich off of exploiting the working class and extracting the surplus value from their labor. And I'll give you an example. Like, you know, say – you know, you work a job and you work in sort of like a professional white collar job and your boss charges the customer maybe $120 per hour of your time. And you're making like 20 or $30 of that, you know, cost that is the customer is seeing. And there's literally no overhead cost for your, your boss. Like he's literally just making a hundred dollars off of, or $90 off of every hour that you spend working and billing to the customer. So in that scenario, like the only reason that you are not making $120 per hour is because you don't have the means of production. You don't own private property. You don't drive to your own office. You work for somebody else. So even if we take and follow, you know, this neoliberal ideology to its conclusion and we look at the way capitalism functions, it still is incoherent. Like it makes no sense to say that everybody just needs to pull themselves up by their bootstrap and that everybody that is an individual got there because of their own individual ingenuity. That's just bullshit. Like no one gets to be a billionaire, a millionaire completely on their own. Like there's no way. Right. Like it just doesn't happen. That's just not the way the economy works. It's not the way that capitalism works. And like full circle irony is that the the term bootstrap and even the term meritocracy are pulling yourself up by your bootstrap and meritocracy were both written as satire right about what we're talking about yeah. right right well and i think though like i mean with all that said like what you were just saying matt like and, and kind of going back to previous points that were made i mean like the right has organized this very very efficient narrative about what is happening in our society you know being invaded by you know rapists and drug dealers and all that stuff and you're working just as hard, you working class American man, a.k.a. white man. And, yeah. you know, you you should be entitled to reap those benefits, but you're not because of immigrants. And we can't kick the immigrants out because, you know, we can't we can't do any of this stuff because people are too politically correct or, you know, they're social justice warriors or whatever. But then with all of that said, the only sort of alternative to this narrative in our society comes from the more liberal elite. Yeah. Whose entire political structure is focused sp strictly on identity politics because of the fact that they cannot in any way come up with, you know, some sort of class analysis as to what's going on and educate, you know, let's say the Democratic base on this matter because they have a vested class interest in keeping everything exactly the same. The only difference being them advocating, well, you know, if we had more diverse cartoon characters or, you know, if 
Jeff Bezos was, you know, uh, I don't know, like we've said in previous episodes, like a woman of color, like hot topic alert. How do we get more women into board positions? Is this a trend that is here to stay or can you sit this one out? I am Beate Chalette, the founder of The Women's Code, also known as The Growth Architect. I'm in service of gender equality. You know, they, they want more inclusion and diversity in the political sphere, in everything from advertisements to business owners to you name it. But all of those things do not change the fundamental structure system of, and structure of, of, capitalism. of capitalism as a whole. Right. It, it just paints it a new shade of fucking green, you know, and tries to make it appear that it's something different when in reality it's very much the same thing. It's just not quite as harsh. I don't know if you remember, Jared, but we were when we were at like this like political organization meeting, we were talking to someone and we said we both kind of said to this person at the same time representation doesn't equal justice you right know what I or mean? representation is not a political platform yeah and like, it's yeah it's not justice in and of itself to just have more representation if it's not coming with an economic change and i think that who put it the best honestly was sam in our last episode because on the episode on feminism she said specifically how you know like marx for instance was extremely effective in the 1800s at organizing predominantly the white working class, you know, globally, yeah. because that's who it was directed at. And this sort of appeals to white working class workers and how the insertion of a more like, you know, inclusive, yes, identity based type of uh, analysis or program, which she called, you know, like black feminism, for instance, that being incorporated into those ideals kind of marries the two where you have Yes, inclusion and representation, but with the overlying or, or sort of bedrock of structural analysis, Marxist analysis, class analysis, because you can't really have one without the other. Yeah, exactly. I mean, race and identity are important things. And, you know, we're definitely not going to downplay that because the way that race is socially constructed and the way that class has formatted our society, I mean, they're they're inextricably tied together they're you know they're inseparable concepts especially in the u.s especially in the u.s but just to give like a concrete definition to our listeners who may not be aware of the the uh, context of the argument and the you know the term identity politics identity politics is sort of this tendency for people of a particular religion race social background etc to form exclusive political alliances and also their tendency to move away from traditional broad-based party politics, like, you know, class-based politics, like if you're a Marxist or a socialist or a communist or any other type of, like, broad-based party politics. Like, so identity politics is not always, like, a negative connotation, but it should be coming second in, in terms of an analysis to, like, a materialist analysis of society and how society has become fundamentally unequal in an economic sense because all of these social constructs like race and and gender and things like that they matter less i mean they're still important but they matter less than the overarching way that we had this society formatted as a patriarchal like white dominated society you know white supremacist society I mean, these things were formatted by capital and early forms of accumulation. 
So the identity politics, while important in understanding the intersections of how marginalized groups have formed in the modern day, it's also important to understand the underlying class structure as to why these things happen in the first place and in whose interest they are formatted and, and constructed. Not that I necessarily disagree, but I think that it's it's kind of what you're saying, like class and how we understand society organized around capital, capital accumulation and how class inherently develops in that society is obviously extremely crucial I think the importance of where identity intersects with that is specifically how identity is used to divide the classes specifically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like it's much easier to discipline your workforce if they're convinced that the other half of the same exact pool of workers that just look differently than them are less than them yeah. or, you know, out to get them or whatever the case may be. And I think that's really where the intersection of identity, class, and you know, class analysis ought to be at, uh, yeah. and 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 merging the two. Not that one necessarily takes supremacy o- over the other, but that you can't really understand one without, without the, the other. other especially yeah. as, again, especially in the United States and how we've developed up until this point in particular. Yeah, I mean, I a think dialectical yeah. relationship. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going <laughs> to say. It's like you know, like what Mao wrote about. But I think that overall, because we're kind of on this, this still this point about political correctness and identity politics and how the two are sort of related to the modern like capitalist organization within society and, and that sort of thing. The right has used these elements though to delegitimize a lot of what I think the left is trying to achieve yeah. by sort of saying like, oh, well, we can't even have we can't even have any view on this whatsoever because we're white. You know what I mean? Like identity politics has made it so that only these people can speak on these issues and that's not the case at all. The problem is a lot of times the right just wants to say again incredibly like abhorrent and racist things uh without any consequences or, you know, any any sort of anything happening to them in re- in regards to their statements or their yeah. views politically or you know how society ought to be organized and anytime there's any pushback whatsoever it's it's considered to be too politically correct or too rooted in identity politics and again goes back to this like giant conspiracy of cultural marxism so when we look back over the history of political correctness we can see that it's deeply entrenched in the ideology of cultural marxism yeah i just i think it's bullshit but let's just be clear like identity you know class are important indicators for you know studying sociological phenomena like right. i mean there's no and ifs or buts about it like the right can be as, you know, condescending and arrogant as, as they want, like, all day long. But when it comes right fucking down to it, like, if you want to have an intelligent, educated discussion, like, no, no, like, person of any type of intelligence is going to look you in the eye and say, yeah, like, marginalized communities and racism and discrimination, yeah, it doesn't exist. Like, right. no one is going to tell you that. So, I mean, I think the left should just be you know, unapologetic about it. Like we shouldn't need to explain at this point that marginalization, racism and discrimination are real things. Right. And we shouldn't further have to explain like why you should be concerned about social progressive values or civil rights. Like, it's just, it's like a non-issue at this point. I feel like it's so ridiculous to have to explain why you care 
about the world being a better place and and everybody being in unity. Like, I don't understand yeah. what the big deal is. Well, I don't think any of those arguments that they have are good faith whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's really just no point in engaging in. So with all of that said, another thing that I think the right and left both kind of have, again, their their critiques or maybe the right has, like, tropes about and whatnot, but specifically this idea of, like, call-out culture. Yep. And so I guess before we really get into it, what what is call-out culture? Call-out culture, like, to give an example, is just, like, when something someone does is deemed socially unacceptable, abusive, toxic, whatever, and they are called out on social media or otherwise to alert other people in that social group that this person that perpetrated these actions is either dangerous, not to be trusted, an abuser, toxic, or just some negative personality trait that they've they've exemplified, whether it's something very serious like sexual assault or if it's something minor like, you know, um, they just said a word that the other person didn't, didn't like. like right you know what i mean so it could be it could it could range from something very kind of minor to something very serious but i mean we probably all like and many listeners have experiences with this but one example would be um i'll just make one up like this isn't like a specific example but say like there's um a couple in the, in the social group that you hang around, like they have a consensual relationship. One of them breaks it off and the other person is jealous and makes up some type of a story about what happened. And then they broadcast it all over social media and call this other person like a piece of garbage and blah, blah, blah. And then they have all their friends jump in and like validate and corroborate the Mm -hmm. story, whether it's true or not, doesn't really matter in this particular instance, but that's just an example of like what a you know a call out would be and it's right. it's usually carried out online on social media. And I mean you said earlier it's like it's clout chasing. When you're hearing someone use it as like call out culture, they're usually talking about the aspect of this person doing the call out is trying to one up this right. other person. And that's yeah. why I had said it earlier and you'll hear this meme all the time about the left eats itself, right. you know. It comes from this is the idea that you're not left enough. Like someone like contrapoints who is like foundational for left tube you know right like a very center of like leftist politics online right just deleted her twitter because she got called out super duper hard for of all things saying that non-binary people and trans people have slightly different agendas that maybe they could have slightly conflicting agendas right and it's like if you want to look into that do that i'm not going to explain the whole situation but what she said was part of a larger nuanced take that she's talked about before. Right. And she doesn't come from a pl- Obviously, ContraPoints, who right. is a trans oh, woman, okay, yeah. right. doesn't come from a place of malice, of malice yeah, for right. non-binary people. But she was driven to delete her Twitter because of people all the hate, are, yeah. are, are, you know, trying to call her out, message her about this, like, you know, really brief and and, and I mean and, and somewhat shitty you know tweet it was shitty, out, but like, know? does that really overshadow all the good work that they've done? No, absolutely not. And, and, and when there's an explanation so readily available, it's it it seems like it's almost not their fault, you know? No, and I, I mean, I'm sorry, like, you know, like, people can feel the way they need to about it. Like, they can, you know, say maybe that she needs to think about that harder. I really don't think that anyone giving the, like, nuance provided and all that, that she has done for the left and whatnot, I really, I really don't fucking care. Like, honestly, like, with all that nuance provided, who it is who said it, Anyone who is trying to call out another person and that it's in bad faith, 
it, yeah. it is in bad faith. And I think that trying to delegitimize people who have done great work over minor, you know, mistakes or or wrong takes and shit like that. One, it only fucking exists in the internet. You know, yeah. it's heavily online. You would never do that to a person no. in real life. It's like, heavily online. Them. It's heavily online. It's people trying to on the left a lot of times trying to out left or out woke each other. Yeah. Um, and it's extremely and the reason why we brought this up and why it's in, tied into this episode is it's extremely common in a lot of like fringe left groups. I mean, we I have at least done political organizing where either someone I know or maybe if it, it was even me or what ha- what have you was called out for something that was just completely fucking baseless because of a political take. You know what I yeah. mean? Like you had the wrong take because you were uneducated about this. And instead of that person coming up to you and saying, hey, this made me feel uncomfortable and let's have a conversation about it and let's discuss it and help you actually grow from it. Fuck that. I'm going to delete you on social media. I'm going to tag you in a blast fucking Facebook post and tell every single fucking person how much of a piece of shit you are. Like that, that right there has no, has no benefit at all to building the left. And quite honestly, I don't really think that many of these people are actually truly on the left. I think a lot of the call out culture stems quite honestly from upper class liberal white, white, white liberals who got radicalized in college and as soon as they graduate are no longer going to be fucking radicals and anymore. Here's, here's the thing, too, is like the problem that you have to pay attention to is just the optics that the callouts provide. Like yeah. the person who is calling out Natalie Wynn, right. ContraPoints, is not the same person who's calling out right-wingers or right. actively debating right-wingers or convincing right-wingers like right. ContraPoints does. So you're kind of shooting the movement and in the foot, you're shooting yourself in the foot because it's like these same people are just actively damaging the left. They're not actually going out, but and, they also and fighting for it, you but know? they also don't care what they're looking for is they want someone to take a screenshot of their, of, te- of their tweet and share it around. And that's want, all, that's all they yeah. fucking care. They want about. their 30 seconds and of fame. Right. Another like slightly related example to this call out culture. And I hate, you guys are going to hate it because I'm going to put the clip in right here. If we want to defeat capitalism, we are going to need a party that will organize, organize working people to fight for the demands that we want and to win socialism. Thank you so much. Right, right uh, quick point of privilege. Quick point um, of personal privilege. Yes. Um, guys, uh, first of all, James Jackson, Sacramento, he, him. I just want to say, can we please keep the chatter to a minimum? I'm one of the people who's very, very prone to sensory overload. There's a lot of whispering and chatter going on. It's making it very difficult for me to focus. Please, can we just, I know it's, we're all fresh and ready to go, but can we please just keep the chatter to a minimum? It's affecting my ability to focus. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Okay, is there a speaker against name, point chapter, pronoun? Privilege. Point of personal privilege. Yes. Please do not use gendered language to, to address everyone. Okay. <laughs> right? You know, the DSA meeting. Right. You know? Oh, gosh. And in that event, it just sets this weird tone where you've just given ammo to the right just to make fun of. Right. You know, and maybe those people have slightly valid points, but... To do that so publicly and to just make kind of an ass of yourself, I hate right. to say it. Yeah, uh, no, they definitely, no, that's exactly what happened, yeah. In front of everybody, when we're really truly working towards something, when like the DSA is actually as, you know, as shitty as they do it sometimes, really actually trying to work towards something, right. and we're going to interrupt it with these kind of like one-upmanship type type right. games, you know? And, and that's the thing is, you know, I don't, and I think Sam might have touched on this a bit in the last episode, it's like, 
as someone on the left and who has done left organizing before, like I have no issue with progressive stack. Like progressive stack is like a part of pretty much any general meeting, you know? Yeah. But how you handle that at a conference is you need to maybe have the speakers lined up, be of a diverse crowd, you know, have your groups uh, do a progressive stack in their individual meetings of some kind. But this whole like point of privilege, like, you know, completely derailing the entire like movement to pay optic service to towards the fucking internet left. Who's not even at present at any of your fucking meetings. Like, to me, it's not only making an ass of yourself. I don't. I don't believe it. It's I don't, virtue signaling. I, I yeah. don't think it's legitimate. I really don't believe that anyone in that room felt like what was going on was legitimate, but they did it anyway to appease some sort of, or I guess, virtue signal. Yeah, or whatever that's what the case I would consider yeah. it. I mean, but don't get me wrong. Like there are definitely scenarios where you know someone is called out for a legitimately bad right, of thing. Course, like, of course, there is. There have been abusers that have been yes. called out, and because of them being called out, like you know, the community is safer. Like right. it's not an inherently bad thing. Call out culture. It's just when it's used in the wrong way. When it's used for social leverage and clout rather than its intended purpose of making communities safer. safer right. Then it's it's just kind of useless. And when you you know, get into this, uh, you know, when you bring identity politics into it or, you know, uh, political correctness or, you know, social justice warrior culture into it, you know, you get these things like the DSA convention where it's just like everything becomes a point of privilege where you're, you've got to sort out all of these different, like, you know, uh, you know, problems or like, mar you know, who's marginalized, who's not marginalized, who is more, you know, oppressed and these different things. It's just like, stop for a second. And, and, you know, just realize you're not the only person in the room. Right. That's and all and I just stop say. playing games. Because to yeah. me, it looked like one giant fucking game. And for people who actually have concerns, like, think about whether, is this a private message thing? Is this a, maybe you should talk to your friends and then approach that party again thing and see what other people really think about it? Like, or should this be a public comment? Yeah. You know, sometimes public callouts like the Me Too movement are fantastic. Right, right. Because that's how we get shit done. Right. But other times when it's something like a DSA meeting, you're just not making any progress right. by doing that. Or, type of or stuff just out loud. minor political talking. I points. feel like if you're at a convention like that with other socialists or other, you know, socially progressive people, like, and you feel the need or you feel so oppressed or marginalized at that in that environment, I feel like there's. You know, maybe something wrong with the environment itself. Right. But I mean, I, I think this idea of like call out culture, it transitions into this idea of like, you know, how do we how do we on the left like correct these sorts of, you know, issues that yeah. we see? Do we in, in, enact a sort of more punitive measures like punishment? You know, this person is canceled and needs to be isolated from all of their friends and whatnot because they did something that we deem, you know, wrong. And, you know, obviously if it's something heinous, then fine. But, you know, if they said something really stupid or like, let's say racist or whatever, you know, five fucking years ago, 10 fucking years ago, and it gets dug up on the internet, certainly like that's an incorrect view to have. Yeah. But like you, you have to talk to them about that. I'm sure that if they were spoken to, they would then see, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have said these things and it's hurtful to people. Or, yeah, I totally see... Or they might already know how stupid and ignorant yeah. it sounds. They've already moved 
way beyond where they were in that time frame. And it's more important to restore that person's mentality rather than completely just isolate them or look to call them out and gain some sort of internet notoriety for it. If I could just say, you know, a word of wisdom to like, you know, people on the left and in situations like this, you just need to talk to the people in your life, talk to your social circle and really have an understanding of like, what is, what is a boundary? Like what is something that can be forgiven? What is something that is not forgivable? What is something that is you know, figure out a threshold or a boundary so that you can understand, you know, what is something that needs to be punished? Like, for example, if there's an abuser, there's a sexual abuser or a, uh, someone who, you know, has just done something like Jared said, absolutely heinous. That is something that maybe deserves a little bit of punitive reaction or response. Whereas like someone who says a bad word or says something that's like insensitive, like say, hey, you know, I understand like you were socialized to feel like that word is acceptable, but when you say that word, it hurts people like this, or it hurts people mm -hmm. like me. When you say the R word, it hurts people like me that have a disability that is not necessarily visible. You right. know what I mean? Being like that or approaching the situation like that is going to not only educate the person that you're you're confronting, but it's going to let them know that you care about them enough to restore the good relationship that you have with them. And if you just kind of extrapolate that onto large groups of people on the left, especially where we don't have a lot of institutional power, it's important that we understand when to forgive and when to, you know, be more punishing to people. Especially too, when you're doing any kind of actual organizing work with real working class people. Yeah. You know? Not on left book. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like uh, the working class is backwards. They are backwards. You know what I mean? Like, for the most part, like they have a lot of backwards views. It's hard to grow up in this society. Or yeah. It's not It's not hard to. It's impossible to grow up in this society and not have backwards views on things. Baggage what, and all whether, that stuff. Whether conscious or subconscious, like it's just a fact of growing up and, in American society. And we have to have these more restorative approaches to things and be willing to do this when, when it's in good faith. Because if we don't, then we also risk isolating people who we absolutely must have in the movement yeah, and losing to, them to 4chan and 8chan right, exactly. and, and yeah. you know next and, week you see them blowing up a mosque or something i don't know right, right. and like as leftists we're supposed to be empathetic mm -hmm. we're supposed to understand that people are products of their environment and that they are made up completely of their material conditions right so why is it that when someone has a slightly problematic view that just goes out the window. Right. You know, we can look at a criminal and say, well, we, they had a problem with social, you know, their socioeconomic status. There's mental health problems that were untreated, yada, right, yada, right. yada. We can make up a hundred reasons as to why someone might commit a crime. But then when we say this person said something slightly problematic, we're like, nope, done. Right. Boom. We want to put them, we talked about in one episode, or we talked about in the private prison episodes, you know, when we put someone in prison, the goal should be, let's get them out and let's make them a better citizen so that they right. don't do this yeah. again. Let's reintegrate them exact same way that people with these slightly problematic views should be done. No, right. I'm not saying like if someone's like, actually, uh, black people's brains are smaller. Right. I'm not, right. We're not saying like, no, forgive them. And like next week we're going right. to have like, a sit down with them and, and it's all going to be cool. But we're saying that if someone says something that's slightly off, like maybe they don't quite understand Right, um, you know the non-binary thing, or they or don't understand whatever. why the R word is offensive. Yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah. or whatever. Or they let something slip out that you know just was right. didn't touch you the right way. It's like you can't 
you can't just decide like to cut them off completely. Right. You wouldn't do that to a criminal if you're a leftist. Right. Is. Then why would you do it to somebody who you thought was a friend, you know? And now one thing I will say, perhaps on a final note on this, because liberals love to take my views on this and then sit there and be like, because I typically online be like, well, if you believe in this restorative approach, then wouldn't you feel this way towards someone like Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden who yeah. had these horrible views in the past or enacted this horrible legislation? And to that, I, of course, have to say one giant fuck no. And the reason is because these people not only have had institutional power, but continued to enact institutional power throughout their careers long, long, long after the fact that they did or said these more problematic things, say, in the 90s, like the crime bill or the super predators comments and shit. Yeah. They continued to do this for years and years and years, all the way up until presidential elections, in which point it became inconvenient to have those views anymore. Yeah. Or in the instance of brain dead Biden, um, you just <laughs> have no ability to even cognitively know where you are. Therefore, you don't even yeah. make any fucking attempt to try and you know, recoil some stupid ass shit that I mean, you said back in the at, 90s. Or at whenever. best, these people are just like caving their views to whatever is, is exactly. currently popular. It's either that or they're just willfully ignorant. You know, this information right. has been available to them their whole lives. They right. all come from a place of privilege and they right. just completely ignore these narratives that have been going right. on for years and years. Like, right. well, I don't even know which is more aggravating. And, I don't and, know which I prefer it to be. And they're still ignoring them. Regardless yeah. of all the optics and theatrics, they still give absolutely yeah. no fucks about any of that shit. But I'm, um, I mean, you know, at least Joe Biden is keeping us safe from corn pop. So that's right. That's, that's, yeah. all, that's always good. That's all good. Good old corn pop. Well, anyway, <laughs> I think we should go into cool um, a very special segment of our show. Um, we're actually doing this for the first time, but it's something we thought would be really fun. Um, so we actually took some took our clothes uh, off. Uh, <laughs> that too. So um, we're also fully naked right now. We're gonna take some <laughs> like every uh, listener questions. Okay, so our first question comes from Anthony, and he asks. Did you have an event or a thing that radicalized you or something that galvanized you as an ardent anti-capitalist? If so, what was it? Or was it a slow burn over time, just building of contradictions in capitalism that had you seeking more? I think um, for me particularly, it was sort of like a slow burn over time. Although I just recently saw, you know, you know, on Facebook when you have those posts that like, are like posts from the past right, that come right, right. back and, you know, you can post them memories. again. Memories. Yeah, memories. Yeah, thank you. Um, sorry, I'm illiterate. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, like, a memory came up a few days ago of, of me posting something seven years ago that was very clearly indicating that there was some type of a class undertone to politics. And I feel like if you go to most people, most, like, liberal-leaning people nowadays— you can get them to agree that there's something corrupt in politics. Like money in politics is corrupt. Like there's something wrong with the campaign finance system. There's something wrong with the government. I feel like any liberal you go up to, you can convince them that there's some type of, you know, problem, you know, something is, something stinks, you know? Right. And I feel like that's generally agreeable to most people, but where people differ is like what the root of the problem is. So I think for me, especially it was a very slow burn over time but I, looking back, realized that there was always sort of like a Marxist undertone to the way I was processing problems. And I, I credit, you know, that to myself being a very, you know, process-oriented thinker. Like, I, 
I think of things in, in terms of like processes. And to me, when I started to read Marx and started to understand, you know, leftist ideology in a, in an academic sense, it just clicked for me when I, when I read the, the communist manifesto and then I read, you know, excerpts of capital and I've read books here and there and different things. I just sort of understood it. And then it just clicked for me once I learned that all conflict in society, all history is a result of class conflict. Like it just clicked for me. And it made sense that, you know, one group is interested in capitalism functioning this way for their interest, hmm. not just because of it's their interest, but because capitalism fundamentally favors a property to ruling class. Hmm. So I think at that point, once I realized the terminology and understood definitions and, and looking at things in this way, it just clicked for me what was I felt already there. Just I didn't have a language, so to speak, for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, so I guess I was like heavily socially progressive, like liberal in pretty much my like freshman and sophomore year of college. But kind of towards the tail end of my sophomore year and and um, going into my junior year, I should I should preface my undergraduate degree was in environmental science. So I was like really passionate, not only about the science, but also the policy behind, you know, the environment and what was going on with our planet. And throughout, you know, the sort of gen ed courses or the general courses that we're required to take in environmental science, environmental law, you know, chemistry, all this other stuff, environmental chemistry, it was like almost like there was this reinforcement of like, well, basically, the planet's fucking dying. Uh, global warming's happening. All these devastating things are going to happen. And here's how we fix it. Uh, compost, take shorter showers, uh, buy an electric vehicle. Bicycle to work. Bike to work more. Go meatless on Monday. Um, you know, whatever. And I agreed. I was like, oh, yeah, I, I've got to lower my carbon footprint and I've got to do all these things. And it was just very stressful and nothing, no one was around me doing any of these things. Like the world kept on churning. And not to say that, you know, your personal decisions, you know, don't affect certain things, but realistically at a structural level, they fucking don't. So I just, I just kind of had this thing going off in my head. Like th there's just something not right here. This is just very bizarre to me. And so I took this class at a uh, USF and I had to read this book in it and it was called what every environmentalist needs to know about capitalism. And it just breaks it down about how there's really no, the capitalists, you know, care about the planet or they don't care about the planet. There is no this, that, or the other there's the profit motive. There's the drive to continue to compound and grow infinitely yeah, at, infi at infinitum. Yeah. And there is no stopping it. If the system stops, it dies. We know what happens when it stops. It comes to a grinding halt and everyone goes, you know, out of work and all this other shit. And there's all these quotes in there, you know, they, of course, quote the famous one, you know, uh, it's easier to envision the end of the world than it is to envision the end of capitalism. There's, you know, all these breakdowns on how much, you know, resources we're using on a daily basis and the amount of complete structural change it would require to get out of this, you know, uh, environmental calamity. 
And it's just, quite frankly, not going to fucking happen under capitalism. People will often say, well, capitalism moves too slowly or this, that, or the other, but it's just never going to happen. So not to derail totally on the environmental argument, we have a whole episode on that. But basically what I'm getting at is that was sort of the moment where I was like, yeah, this system's fucked. And we can't be looking at about individual changes. We have to be looking at systemic changes. And so, obviously, Marx was referenced throughout this book. I had already read Marx for other, like, kind of more political classes, but I don't think I had ever read Marx, you know, the way you you need to to study it. And once I kind of got into that, got into more, like, leftist, orga- like, political organizing uh, groups who really, really helped me kind of digest all of this material and kind of help navigate you and you know, certain ways so that you're not kind of just like lost in the the realm of, yeah. you know, radical ideas. And that's pretty much what did it. I haven't looked back since. And it's it's changed the entire way that I view yeah. the world. And it started primarily with the, the environmental question. Yeah, yeah. I think like it's a mix. It was a slow burn, but there was also kind of like a defining point. And like any good high school intellectual you know i graduated <laughs> being a staunch libertarian oh yeah same you know? oh my same. gosh and i think like some at some point after my freshman year of college started i actually um watched a documentary and it really had broken down something similar to what jared had said but less on the environmental side and more kind of about the finances and it mm. kind of discussed how everything is real everything in our society is pretty much based off of loans mm-hmm. you know and these loans are pretty much written in a way that favors the upper class, right. you know, the banking industry. It's like in the text itself is that none of these loans, if you if you put them all together, if you look at the national deficit or whatever, it can never all be paid back. I'm sorry, the national debt. It can never actually all be paid right. back. Yeah. There's always going to be interest to be paid off on that. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at when you look at this, they kind of give me this like uneasy feeling of like, there's no way this can last forever. Like this isn't actually how things are supposed to work. There's yeah. no like natural order to this. This is just going to be continuous growth forever. And that didn't sit right with me, but at the time I didn't really think of it as like, oh, this is like some Marxist shit, you know? Yeah. But I was actually majoring in sociology almost by complete accident because it just right. sounded like psychology. So I was like, all right, I'm just taking a few classes <laughs> yeah. in there. And I did it and you had to read Marx, but you also had to read other people right. who spoke about capitalism in a very like third person kind of way. Like they spoke about capitalism from outside of capitalism. Yeah, like and the, it was about like, the entity You start itself. realizing like, wow, there's all these different structural things. And like the way the world exists now is very specific to one form of economic system, you know? And once you start realizing all that, I think it's just like a rabbit hole, you know? <laughs> Eventually you're going to fucking... Right. End up a fucking commie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no way out. Once you start realizing that it's been built that way. And, it, but, and it's um, so yeah. deep. It's so deep. Like once it just, I mean, not to feel like, whoa, it's deep. Man. It's <laughs> deep, deep, bro. But I mean, it, it really does just like when you have really, really read this shit and you really truly get a grasp on what's going on and how capitalism functions, even the littlest, most mundane things, you'll be like, fuck. It's a curse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're gonna be like, no, that's capitalism. There it is. Yeah. Like, everything that happens. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like being a Marxist is kind of like, you know, when you look up on WebMD your symptoms and then you basically think that you're gonna die. Right. That's... Basically, that's kind of Marxism, <laughs> except except every symptom is just capitalism. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It's like, you see like microtransactions in video games. And you're like, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they need to make more and more money off of every single video game. Right. You know what I mean? Every little thing that happens, you're like, that's just capitalism. Like, right. That's just how it works. Yeah. Like, get over it. Yeah, but it's like, we we consent to it being the way that it works. Yeah. Yes. Like, it doesn't have to be that way. Because it's easier to yeah. consent to it. But yeah. anyway, 
So another uh, listener question. I'll try and uh, read this as coherently as possible. Um, nothing on the person asking the question. I'm just an illiterate. Um, <laughs> so this is from Jessica. And okay. she is asking, any ideas slash suggestions for building a movement despite the often fractured and sometimes at odds leftist groups and tendencies? How should leftist groups cooperate slash interact with each other in the coming years? I yeah, mean, I'd say... Um, Trotskyists get the wall. Anarchists <laughs> oh get the wall. <laughs> just, no, oh um, I mean, so stuff like that, I think that's always fun to have like jokes. Like I am a strong proponent of various tendencies riffing on each other and good fun. Um, with that said, I think that my biggest recommendation for getting sectarianism out of the left is get off the fucking internet. Yeah. Honestly. Talk to each other. Um, Meet up with people who share, you know, similar views as you and go meet up with them. If they have a reading group, just talk to them. And one thing I would also say that I think a lot of people, especially who are so used to heavily being on the Internet. Once you become on the left, like you have to understand there's a lot of theory involved in this and it does take a lot of time to kind of digest all of it. Don't take criticism or argument or disagreement as an attack on your personal character be willing to listen to other people's ideas when they disagree with you on the from a from a left perspective and also be able to stand firm in your views or be able to correct yourself when you feel necessary i think yeah there's a lot of times new leftists and it's really easy to tell when people are new on the left quite honestly because they tend to get super defensive um, very easily. They hold rigidly onto ideas that dogmas. they're yeah dogmas. Um, and that's another thing with your tendency. Like you shouldn't be dogmatic about it. Um, I was literally when I my the first group I was doing real left organizing with in college. There were a lot of people. I'll just say that they could not even really be friends with or associate with people who had other tendencies than them. That's how severe it was and i yeah. think that that right there is so fucking cursed and anyone who's like that should really have no business in left circles i i just think my biggest recommendations were that would be that the left needs to get the fuck off the internet because the more the more the left meets in person the better we always get along always yeah. I've, I've been at rallies with anarchists marxist leninists maoists social democrats progressive liberal democrats like and everyone's getting along and having a good time because yeah. they're all there for the cause and that's what's most important and no one mentioned stalin right exactly and, <laughs> and 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 it's just yeah it's that and then also just you got to be able to take some fucking criticism like criticism yeah. is not bad criticism and debate is a part of this thing like you do not grow by you know, thinking that your fucking ideas have never been thought of before. Or like, acting like you know everything. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You have to be able to say, like, shit, I wasn't aware of that. And also, like, I would say just kind of, like, taking the the mic for a second from Jared, um, <laughs> just be be open to different, like, ideas, but don't be dogmatic because, really, if you understand Marxism, it's just a tool for us to, like, understand the sociological phenomena that underpins capitalism and it's not really dogmatic in the sense that you know we understand things through theories like like 
theories about labor and value and things like that. Like these things are subject to change in different conditions and there's no reason to be dogmatic or sectarian about it. Like, you know, people have their fans, like they're, whether they're an ML, they're a Maoist, they're, you know, a Trotskyist or whatever, like, Sadist. right. <laughs> or people have their different, um, you know, sex or, or I- ideologies that they ascribe to. But at the end of the day, if you can't like realize that your, your like opinions and your ideas are fallible and that you need to take in new information and constantly grow, I just feel like, you know, first of all, you're probably really immature. And then second of all, like, you need to check yourself and grow before you interact. You and go. then second of all, like not be laboring this too much. But if you're concerned about left unity, you have to be dedicated to restorative justice. You just have to. Right. You can't look at the world in terms of dismissing people. Like you can't be that person that, you know, puts their PayPal in their bio and they're like, you know, don't talk to me unless you PayPal me $5. Like, or, you know, <laughs> I charge for emotional labor, like nonsense like that. That's the stuff that like, I get it, but it's, you know, it's, it's divisive. Like you can't hope to have unity if you're not willing to put in the work to be in unison. Like it's, think of it in terms of a relationship. If you're in a relationship, you're always giving, the other person's always taking. How is that going to work out? It has to be a balance. You have to be dedicated to restorative justice. You have to be dedicated to non-dogmatism, critical thinking skills, and being open with other people and not taking things personally, not taking it, as Jared said, like a personal attack to be wrong. It's okay to be wrong. Yeah. yeah. It's the only way you learn anything. Fuck. Jared, Jared, Jared had said, go out and talk to leftists. I'm going to give the recommendation, go out and talk to normal people. Yeah. Because yeah. you're going to realize that your leftist friends and you probably agree on like, a shit ton of more stuff than you realize once you actually talk to the normal public. Right. And I mean like the normal public. I mean like go to events and see what people think needs to be done in this country. Go to political events, like liberal ones, you know, like yeah, go to, go type to a, shit or go whatever. Go to a kid rock concert, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you'll hear, you know, these people, like we've talked about before, they just don't see the structural realities. And so one thing the left can connect on is just seeing those structural realities every single one of us mentioned that in our answer and how we became leftist right and so we should use that you know and i'm not opposed to using like synthetic views like i think that i'm not personally i don't really identify as an anarchist but i really like their discussions on hierarchy you know that's something that seems to be missing on the marxist leninist side sometimes and i'm sure they have opinions on it but there's not so much of a talk and a focus on hierarchy like there is in anarchist communities and um like another one you know they they have so much there on talks about like um like co-ops and things mm-hmm. and so it's like it's really interesting to see the different um kind of subjects that these different um like sectarian groups really do focus on you yeah. know i would just say you know as a final point um you know we need each other like yeah we need each other so fucking act like we need each other and and act as if we need each other act as if you need other leftists yeah, yeah. There is no guarantee there's going to be revolution. We might not make it. The fucking world might end, right. you know? And so it's like to maximize our chances that this is going to happen, we need each other. Yeah. You're right. Absolutely. There's 100%. no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So uh, I guess our third and final question for the evening. Um, this is from Louisa. 
Uh, and she would like to know, or would like to hear rather, um, our views on the appropriation of identity movements by capitalism, which I think we have discussed. Yeah, we talked a, a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like I went for a work training, right? And this was in Fort Lauderdale, and I walk into an embassy suites, and there is a at the embassy suites a a Stonewall selfie station with a bunch of rainbow flags. Oh, like the Stonewall? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, exactly. Gotcha, gotcha. It was a Stonewall selfie station. God. Um, and I'm I'm just using like pink washing as an example, but obviously, like Embassy Suites, I, I think they're owned by Hilton. Like, this is an industry that does not fucking give two fucks about gay people or gay liberation or any of the struggles of the people that. Uh, were involved in the Stonewall riots. They certainly, the Hilton family would have definitely turned away fucking gay patrons, like yeah. if they knew about them during that time frame. This appropriation of identity has one goal and one goal only. You know, it's to accumulate capital. It's to yeah. transition into a new face, a new economy, to get gather new support and appear to be inclusive. But as we've said countless times on this show, you know, capitalism's amoral. It doesn't give a shit about what we view as being moral or amoral. It gives a shit about profit motive. And right now, um, in our society, you know, like it's commonplace to be accepting of gay people. It's commonplace to be accepting of pride. You know, at least and it and it should overall. be right, it right. Should it be, should but... be. It should be. But they're of course utilizing these things as a means to say hey look at what we're doing so people are like oh i'm gonna go sh i'm gonna go get my room at embassy as opposed to fucking whatever another hotel yeah. because they support gay people and th and that's that's just one instance i would say there's a fantastic video online by h bomber guy on youtube um called woke brands and it's about 30 minutes but i highly suggest you take a moment to watch it and it it, it breaks down kind of that dynamic jared's talking about of there being structural reasons for them to be woke. Right. You know, it's not, yeah. again, capitalism is amoral. They're only doing it because it it does generate profit. Right. It generates revenue to be gay-friendly or right. to be, like, suddenly woke, you know? And then on the other end, I would say, as individuals, we really, really need to focus on doing our, our part in terms of research. Like, you can't just follow what the advertisements show you yeah. just because Nike is, you know sponsoring Colin Kaepernick or whatever the, the commercial is this this week. We really need to actually look and see where are these CEOs donating? You know what yeah, I mean? I mean where, not, where are these companies? Yeah. Where are these companies? Do they have anything unethical? I mean, I can fucking probably find like a million right. things unethical about Nike. Right. So you just need to really focus on not being, you know, convinced by the advertising. You have to look at the know? bigger picture. And we all, we all do it. We just right. get lazy yeah. and we say, well, they're gay friendly because they have the... the Right. You know, they have the rainbow flag, so of right. course they are. Their, their check mark is rainbow flag for Pride Month. But yeah, you got to do your diligence to yeah. look into it and see, is that true? Right. You know, and a lot of the times it's not. I mean, I, I just think like it's hard to to think any institution of capital has like ethics as their primary motivating no. factor. Like, I, I mean, to the person asking this question, Louisa, I mean, I think if you're a listener of this show, it should be clear at this point that capitalism has no ethics. Like there's no ethical evaluation in capitalism except when it comes to whether we can acquire more market share of power whether we can acquire more market share to sell more products to more people what is culture dictating acceptable that we can market on like right. th I, I would think about pink washing especially 
in that sort of sense or under that sort of lens. Like capitalism only cares to the the point that it can break into new markets and market to people or advertise to people and sell products and accumulate capital. Right. Like another example I would bring up is an, another discussion I got involved with online not too long ago would be like when KFC decided to offer like vegan products. Right. Like a friend of mine asked me to weigh in for a friend of theirs like and give my opinion. And I just explained like first and foremost, you have to understand that KFC is a corporation. It's an institution of capital. First and foremost, their responsibility is is not to the environment, not to ethical principles, not to other human beings, but to their shareholders. Right. And then their shareholders are responsible to each other, but also to, you know, the corporate structure, to long-term profit goals. And below that, you know, you have the distribution, you have this vegan product, but in no way, shape, or form is that going to, you know, influence the company itself to stop producing animal products. The only thing is it, it's going to do is appeal to vegans who want a quick bite. Right. You know what I mean? And that's not necessarily, you know, an ethical stance, but it's not going to cut down on animal usage or animal products or animal, you know, slaughter or whatever. Right. It's just going to appeal to a, a secondary market de- demographic so that KFC can overall have yeah. more marketability to more demographics. Well, and now you can bring your vegan friends to the right. fourth meeting. Yeah. No, but that's 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 a great point because that's what's so funny is I literally saw someone like going off on this post online about how Burger King having the impossible the burger. impossible yeah. where they're like that thing tastes just like a regular Whopper. No one has any excuse at this point to like eat meat. All these companies have so many options. I'm like, first of all, like. I mean, I hate to sound mean because I understand they didn't like truly understand. But in my mind, I was just like, damn, you got to be really ate up with the dumbass to not realize what the <laughs> fuck you just posted. Because <laughs> cringe, bro. You're literally you're you're going to this restaurant or this fast food chain. You're buying the Impossible Whopper. So they've now just gained a new demographic. And that money that you just spent on that Impossible Whopper has now just subsidized the continuation of the killing of fucking cows. Yeah, exactly. Because they're still selling meat products. Like, they don't, it's not like they accumulate all this money on this product and they're like, all right, let's make sure only this money is spent on more green yeah, products. Yeah, think of and it this, this way. Spent- like, what if Burger King actually did that? Like, they sold so much vegan product that they actually decided to become a vegan restaurant. Right, but if they gave... They're still not principled. They're still not acting within an ethical compass. They're acting supremely for chasing capital. Yeah, because if they actually gave a shit, they'd say, you know what, we really want to make a concerted effort to change our relationship with the environment, and we also think killing animals is unethical. Our entire... Yes, us, Burger King, our entire menu is now going to be all vegan, and we don't give a fuck what happens. Okay, obviously never going to happen right. but even if it did it would be driven by market forces but so I, there's no ethics involved right. in it at there's all. not there's no ethics ultimately capitalism is like a fucking it's like a black box like some shit from the matrix and it's just studying the shit out of you and it's spitting out whatever simulation you want to see yeah. to keep you coming back for more like that one black mirror episode no, yeah it, no but it has, it has no you know doing this because it's ethical or not if tomorrow 70 percent of the american population was like hey we're not cool with gays anymore the embassy would be fucking ditching that yeah stonewall whatever they wouldn't hold ground and hold their principles they're fucking they they don't fucking care about any of that shit. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's why a lot of like, even now, like the modern right wing is like actually scared, like, which again terrifies me as I've stated on previous episodes, is getting like in tune with this idea that, hey, like maybe capitalism that we thought was like so good for us for so long is actually not so good because it's giving people too much choice. It's allowing even like these progressive ideas to become popularized and then become marketable and in turn dominate the culture. You know, the culture. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like a right winger like Tucker can now right. say, no, NBC Suites is just doing that for your money. You know right. what I mean? And he can sound smart to everybody in the right wingers. Right. Yeah, dumb leftists buying NBC Suites well, because of that. I mean, you know? he would be right if he was saying that they were doing it for right. the money because they but are. This is, this but that's is, the problem is when th- Tucker's right, he, he builds an audience. But this, you know? is, yeah. this is where this, this, like, this kind of shit gives rise to fascism because the alternative is then you institute a far more authoritarian version of a market that has some kind of intervention yeah. of the state here and there, like to manage it, like some kind of some to some degree state planning. I mean, yeah, fascism yeah, yeah. did have state planning um, in integrated with the sort of like elite bourgeois elements uh, that run the kind of the capitalist show and bring them into this more authoritarian nationalist structure yeah. that's very hardlined on strict cultural classical norms that do not allow for the entrance or the intrusion of any sort of progressive type of social mobility or social inclusion uh, within their model. And there we go. Uh, everything relates back to Nazis somehow. Yeah. Right? yeah. But anyway, that's that's all of our our questions. Yeah, all of our questions. Very awesome questions. Yes. So we very very much appreciate yeah, that. Was the, fun. Thank you. And we do want to inc- we do want to incorporate more listener questions in our episodes. So please comment on our stuff if you have yeah. a question. Let us know what your question is. Message us directly. We have we would gladly take your question on air. Yeah, we'll do this again for sure. Um, but just you know, we want to thank the people that are intently listening. Um, to Anthony, uh, Jessica, Louisa, and other people that may not have sent us their questions. We do really value you guys. And if you value the work that we put out, you can find us on all major platforms. Um, Again, if you listen to us on Apple, uh, it really helps if you leave us a review because that helps other people find the podcast. We do have a Patreon. We also have PayPal. If you're interested at all in supporting us monetarily so that we can continue to produce this high-value content for you, Uh, We ask that you check out uh, those links in the description. We're on YouTube, we're on Spotify, we're on all the major platforms. So any time you want to interact with us, send us a message on the page, uh, shoot us your questions. We really appreciate our community and want to interact with you guys more. And we hope you stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks for joining us.